I cannot right now look back on the most important conversations I've had over the past 10, 20 years and with honesty say this. You know, looking back at that one now with the benefit of hindsight, I really think we all would have been a lot, lot better off and I've been a lot less authentic back there. The world around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. Chalmers Brothers is a best-selling author, certified personal and executive coach who has a 36-year career focused on leadership development, workplace culture, productivity and accountability, teamwork and clarity and communication, emotional intelligence, trust, and relationship building. And his books, Language and the Pursuit of Happiness and Language and the Pursuit of Leadership Excellence have been adopted by leadership coaching programs all over the place. Georgetown University, George Mason University, Harley Davidson Motor Company, Newfield Network, where I discovered him, uh, also NASA, and many others. He also has a well-known TED Talk you can check out if you are interested. We have a wonderful conversation that spans a lot of different directions, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Chalmers Brothers, welcome to the Thank Big you. Self Show. Thank you, sir. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be with you. And, you know, as we begin and dive into to all of our conversations, especially here on season five of the Big Self Show, we have been starting with this idea of what does big self mean to you? First impression ideas. I'm curious what your thoughts are when you hear the term big self. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is awareness of my role as the author of my life. That I am, I am aware that I am encountering events and circumstances and making up interpretations and explanations and the way that I do that is a gigantic guide and influence and impactor in my life. And so when I hear big self, you know, my first metaphor that I use almost always in my workshops is a big eye in the sky looking at a stick person, right? Meant to indicate you taking a look at you, me taking a look at me. Mm -hmm. So that's my starting point for all my workshops is that capacity for this type of self-awareness. And when I hear that term, that's that's where my mind went. That's awesome. That's I love that. Um, you know, and I know one of the things you talk about is one of the core competencies that we all need to have 
uh, whether it's just modern adulting or certainly a leadership uh, competency, is is this idea of needing to be to say I don't know to have a learner's mindset. Yep. Uh, at the same time, though, like right, we I, I'm sure it's just hard in general for adults who become stayed in 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 their um, who they are, resigned maybe. But also, we live in this meritocracy, and I, I I think the struggle is real on this point of like we're supposed to know, we're supposed to have authority and credibility for certain. Um, competencies that we're supposed to be able to deliver on. So it, it, it seems like it's a bit of a paradox, doesn't it? How can we be humble enough uh, in our day to day when stress arrives to be able to say, I, I don't know, even while we are supposed to also wear the hat of authority. You know, that's a wonderful question. What first comes to mind, you know, Jim Collins is working good to great talks about a level five leader, right? So a level mm-hmm. five leader is a person that has this combination of tremendous commitment, motivation, focus on the goal, the common good, and humility, not or, and, right? And so mm-hmm. it's this. Um, and part of it, I think, you know, there's a term out there called VUCA, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? And that that's the world we live in. It's a VUCA yeah. world. Right. And given that, given the background of that type of change, that kind of ambiguity, that kind of uncertainty. Right. If if change happens like that, then learning better happen as well. <laughs> learn, look, if ongoing change is the background and yeah. the person doesn't learn or the company doesn't learn, all the all the results are bad. All the results are bad. But you said something first, too, about, you know, our ability to not know and our ability to in the face of it, and maybe this is a paradox as well. I have found that some of the people I consider to be not smart people at all are (laughs) rock solid certain about a lot of stuff. Mm. Some of the people I consider to be wise, wonderful humans have areas of doubt, areas of of uncertainty, areas of not knowing, right? and I, I will say this about myself. When I was first introduced to this work, I was in my mid-20s. When I was in my mid-20s, I was rock solid certain that if you didn't see things like I did, you were stupid. I was certain that the way I saw things was the way they were. And yeah. my work, my immersion into this body of work was necessary, I think, to get me in a better place because I, I was just... I'm sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 and this, this work has opened me to number one, being much more comfortable saying, I don't know when I don't know, but also just acknowledging that there are areas of blindness everywhere. Things that not only do we not know, we don't know that we don't know. Right. Right. And, and right. I, I just think that I don't see that. As, as being um, not compatible with effective leadership, right? I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. any more, I think, you know, Jim Collins's version, you know, I'm, I'm a 25-year speaker on for Vistage groups, right? These CEO peer groups around the country. And those groups, Chad, are populated with successful people that are open to learning. 
You know, that's, <laughs> that's a hallmark of, well, number one, you wouldn't join a peer group if you thought you knew everything, right? So, right. so by definition, these are people that are successful and ambi- ambitious and well-rounded, and it's a learning community. They're open to learning, and it's a, it's a refreshing, it's a great vibe. It's a great place it, to be. It, I was gonna, it is refreshing uh, to, to get the feedback, to break through so the, the fear. I, I remember recently in, in getting a certification to do 360s, I had to learn that, well, you've got to do a 360 on yourself. Right. And at first I was, you know, resistant to the idea. I was like, I just want to facilitate these. I didn't know I had to take one. And, and I was like, well, this is how uncomfortable, like how a lot of people are going to feel when they first start asking other people, Hey, give me, assess me, please give me an assessment. And then though, I I don't need to go into it all, but it was just, it was refreshing and, 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 and almost gentle, the, the constructive levels of feedback that I got. And it did, it did reveal to me some things for all of the assessments and tools and trainings that I've had and that I lead on. It revealed some things I didn't know. And that's yep. been really helpful to know in which ways to grow. Um, actually, it reminds me, you share an anecdote of how when you were, you said you first started out as a leader and you were more interested in being liked than in being effective. And then someone had one of these kind of caring gentle, confrontive conversations with you to share with you what they were observing possibly were blind spots. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about how those kinds of conversations are actually really caring? They really, you know, there's a word I got taught in Vistage. The word is carefrontation, right? Mm -hmm. Carefrontation. And what it means, of course, it's a made up word, right? But (laughs) what it it means, in fact, I was with a group of guys said, yeah, but all words are made up. I said, well, you kind of got me there. You kind of got me on that one. Uh, But it means uh, I care enough about you to initiate a conversation with you that in this moment, I'm not 100% sure how it's going to go. I care more about supporting you and your advancement and your goal achievement. I care more about that than my hands not sweating. You know, there's the expression, support isn't clapping while someone's going off the cliff, right? <laughs> right. That's not support. And so in my experience, it was at Anderson Consulting, and a friend of mine was my, my first boss. And he said, Chalmers, I need to have a conversation with you. I'm not exactly sure how to have it. I have a concern that you may overreact to some feedback I'm going to give you. Um, I have a concern that you may think our friendship is in jeopardy. And let me say this. Our friendship will never be in jeopardy. But he used the term, Chad. He said, but but there are some blind spots in your work. Um, And you've said this two or three times that you want a long career in this office. My concern right now is that if nothing changes on your part pretty quick, it's not going to happen for you. Mm -hmm. The practice, the practice, the conversational competency for me is this. Number one, anybody can have an easy conversation because they are easy, Right. Easy mm-hmm. conversations don't separate anybody from anything, right? If, if we have a difficult conversation, however, right, maybe a conversation we have actively avoided, the conversational competency is speak into your concerns. If you have a background concern or concerns up here, right, about how mm-hmm. that conversation is going to unfold, maybe it's an accountability conversation, 
maybe it's a public identity conversation, whatever it is, if we have that concern and if our self-awareness muscle is turned on enough that we can articulate what that is, that's what we speak out loud up front. And Chad, it was this separation of context from content in difficult conversations I found to be so helpful. My friend, in the example I just shared, right, he hadn't even gotten to the job-specific content of the conversation. Everything, right. right, everything that I just shared, this is context, not content. And that, to me, when we ask people, why do many of us avoid difficult conversations? Well, one common answer is, I don't know how to start it. When I was introduced to this, is this is how you start. You start with context. You speak into your concerns on, on purpose right up front, right? I believe this in my heart. We have a good BS detector, and we have an authenticity or sincerity de detector, right? Mm -hmm. And leadership, I think, has gone from command and control to inspire and enroll. Mm. And authenticity is enrolling. If I work with or for you, and you come to me in a conversation, and I get a hit that you are sincere, you're authentic, guess what? I want to play with you. You can't fake it, right? You can't fake right. it. There's another practice that's helped me greatly as I think about these sorts of conversations, and it's this. Number one, can we start here? There are no guarantees in any conversation. So no matter what you or I do on the front end, there's no ironclad guarantees, all right? Check, no guarantees. Number two, what can I do in the upcoming conversation such that no matter what the ultimate outcome is, I will have the fewest regrets. So number, like one, that. number one, there's no guarantees. Okay, check. Number two, what can I do in the encounter such that 10 minutes after it's over or 10 years after it's over, I can look in the mirror and feel pretty good about myself. And I've come to this realization and I, in my workshops, I invite people to really think about this for themselves. I cannot right now look back on the most important conversations I've had over the past 10, 20 years and with honesty say this, you know, looking back at that one now with the benefit of hindsight, I really think we all would have been a lot, lot better off and I've been a lot less authentic back there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot find any examples of that, right? And I believe this, hmm. I believe um, that Whatever energy is, it's real. I get a hit that you are sincere and authentic. I can feel it. And there's something there I think is important, obviously, for leaders, but for anybody that wants to be in a mutually beneficial relationship. It's like uh, it's like uh, working out or going to church. You come back and you rarely regret yes. doing that. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, it's, it's this... And we know this, right? I mean, right. You know, cognitively, you know, and yeah. Uh, yeah, that is wonderful stuff. I'm, I'm thinking of how you say the number one skill for a leader is to be self-aware. If you have to boil it down, it's self-awareness. We certainly have talked a lot about that on the podcast over, over the years. And yet, you know, depending on how far back you go, whether you go back thousands of years where you know, Aristotle and Plato were talking about being self-aware or just the past 10 years where there've been a lot of TED talks and best-selling books on self-awareness. I'm just curious if you see a shift. It could be an anecdotal shift that you're just seeing in your experience 
or uh, or or if maybe maybe you you have some research that you've seen, but is there a shift happening culturally? Are leaders working on being more self-aware in your in your assessment? You know, I'm in a little bit maybe of an odd position because I am explicitly in the business of helping <laughs> people become more self-aware. That is yeah. that is explicitly what I'm doing. And and yeah. in a particular area, right? Self-aware about their own role as the author of their interpretations, right? That level of self-awareness that we are we are aware that events happen in the world. And we live in an interpretive world, which means I now go about the business of making up my explanation or my interpretation about the event. And this capacity, from a self-awareness standpoint, to live with explicit clarity, those are not the same things. This is precisely what I did not understand when I was in my mid-20s when I thought, well, the way I see things is the way they are. Mm -hmm. I was completely convinced that I was objective and that's... There's nothing, you know, and and so I am, um, I'm explicitly, I mean, and I believe this too, if we're not careful, certain types of leadership or teamwork training can be, can become executive entertainment, okay? Hmm. I believe that, because this has happened to me, I believe even in a half a day workshop, like a lot of mine are half day programs, I believe that once you stretch the self-awareness balloon, a little bit, it never goes all the way back. Meaning, mm. once, you, once you help people see that they are indeed responsible, right? Now, it may not seem like, I have a basic claim, we're always at choice. We are always at choice. We always have choices available, and we're constantly choosing every moment of our lives, and one giant benefit of this is once we take responsibility, see, we flex our self-awareness muscle and we see that we are the author already of our interpretations, well, then we get to be at choice whether or not we maintain them, we update them, we let them go. But you don't even get to choose if you don't see. If you don't right. see yourself as the author, then you have, you have, you have just removed a giant piece of uh, taking a look at how you look at things, right? One of the one of the the, the ways I, that I hold self awareness is it's not only being more aware of myself and how I move in the world and do what I do. It's also taking a look at how we look at things, becoming more um, looking at the interpretations, not just through them, but looking at them. And this notion, I believe, and I tell people, look, there's good news and bad news. At the end of a workshop, the good news, <laughs> the good news is you are right now more aware, are you not, of your own role in, quote, how things are around here, right, in the quality of your journey. The bad news is you can no longer pretend you don't see that. You can no longer pretend that you, that you don't have something to do, right, of all the interpretations you came up with you're now aware that you could have come up with something different. In fact, you still can. You still can, right? But the shift, the awareness shift that was giant in my life was shifting away from right-wrong to works-doesn't-work, right? Are these interpretations that I just made up, right? And I have an engineering background, and there are certain things, right, 
If you're typing my blood for a transfusion, there's exactly one correct way. Get it right. If you've got my brake line pulled apart on my car, there's exactly one way to reattach it. Get it right. I'm not talking about those situations, right? Now we're talking right. about the shades of gray that are just part of human life, teamwork and leadership and organizational work and all that. In those areas, in many ways, the right-wrong grid doesn't fit and doesn't help. The effective, ineffective, are these interpretations, are they serving me or not serving me, given the results I say I want? Right. Helpful, right? Is it helpful or not helpful, given the quantitative and qualitative results I'm seeking in my life? And that shift, that awareness shift, right, that there's another framework besides right, wrong, right? There's another framework that we can explore because we live in language, right? The little voice is rarely silent. We are constantly producing interpretations. Nothing wrong with that. But let's at least begin to be aware who's driving the bus. Right. Yes, I love that. Given the results you say you want can provide like a context for almost anything when we're coaching or leading a team, Um Really like that. And of course, your your book, Language in the Pursuit of Leadership Excellence, really models that out just so clearly that that first order level of thinking are to, and that and then these are the results you're getting. Uh, and and you know, you're gonna keep getting them That's until correct. until you distance that observer. That's correct. And again taking a look at the observer I am, right? Becoming a more powerful observer of the observer I am. Mm -hmm. That means bringing myself into the equation, right? On that observer action results model, right? You know, first order learning, as you said, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got, right? So you want to produce produce a new result. We have to take new actions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if you run out of actions, you're stuck, you're, you know, you don't, don't know what to do. This whole second order learning, taking a look at how we look at things, which means and I bring my biases into view, my beliefs into view, my assumptions, my assessments, my moods, my level of physical hydration, and right, all, all the stuff that makes us this unique observer. Now we get to look at it and not just experience life through it, but we look at it. And that... That to me is a gigantic, you know, the ability to do that, I think, is not an incremental step up from not being able to. It's an ocean. It's a significant shift in awareness to be able to see this, take ownership as the author. Um, but I know we're in the business of, of helping people move toward that awareness. I mean, that's that's, I think, central in the work that we do. Yeah, it's a it's a life's it's a life's work. Uh, to, to that end, you know, I haven't heard you speak much about um, using any kind of assessment tools. Are there any that you do use or, or advocate for? You know, I know, I know that you're with the Enneagram, right? And that's we do use the Enneagram a lot, and a lot of and people I know use it. My friend Vinay uses the Leadership Circle, right? Mm-hmm. The yeah, right. Um, I the only only certification. Well, in the Vistage world, m- many many people are doing. They do the Enneagram, but more common than mm. that is either DISC or Myers-Briggs, okay. right? That, that they do you know, those sorts of, of tools. The only instrument I've been certified in is in polarities, the mm. use of the, the, the a polarity map. 
And it is a powerful tool, but it's not an assessment. Well, it can be an assessment tool. It can be an, an assessment tool for how well an organization is currently leveraging a given polarity. Um, but broadly speaking, the, the polarity thinking, it goes like this. In our country, do we need security or freedom? Should we focus on work or family? Should you, work, should you focus on tasks or relationships? And all the answers, it's yes, right? It's always both. It's always yeah, both. Forced answer. And, 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 and the notion is that the great majority of leadership challenges, organizational challenges, even societal challenges are not problems to be solved. They're polarities to be leveraged. Meaning in our country, security is never going to beat freedom. Freedom is never going to vanquish security. They're always going to coexist. Organizationally, tasks are not going to beat relationships. You, you, and and over-focusing on one to the neglect of the other is where the problems come in. And so polarity thinking is this both-and orientation, right? It's a both-and, and it, it looks at, uh, I mean, from, from the coaching standpoint, challenge and support. Imagine someone trying to be an effective coach that doesn't bring both support and challenge to the table with their clients. Right. If you over-focus on support, I buy your story hook, line, and sinker. I never challenge your presuppositions, right? But if I only challenge you and don't support, then you feel beat up and not taken care of, and right? And so um, these polarities... The more I was introduced to them, the more I started seeing them everywhere. I mean, one more example. Our kids right now are 31, 29, and 26. My wife and I are doing our version of hold on and let go. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. That's, you that's what you got to do. Hold yeah. on and let go. And can you imagine what would happen to the relationships involved if you only held on to the neglect of letting go? Or if you only let go to the neglect of holding on, right? So anyhow, long long answer to the question. That's the only um, the only instrument that I'm certified in, uh, and it's the only work really that I do that's not directly connected to what I learned from Newfield and Education for Living, right? The vast yeah. the vast majority of my work is is my version of what I directly learned there. Well, and it is rich and dense. There is so much. There are so many uh, effective conversations to have out of uh, this this book. I'm I'm going back to it again and again. It's as much a reference guide as it is something to be uh, just absorbed, read one time. Um, let me let's let's. Uh, I don't know if it's really even shifting gears, but it's just a kind of exploring. You know, uh, there's there's a couple of lines of thinking that have really opened up uh, a lot of these types of conversations over the past two or three decades. One of them is Daniel Goleman's research uh, and and all of the emphasis on EQ, emotional intelligence, and, and, and you know it's wonderful stuff. I think similar to the self-awareness question, it could be, well, I mean, are we seeing it impact organizations? I'd like to hope so. But I'm curious just how you feel when people use the terminology soft skills as opposed to, you know, oh, but it's not a hard skill. What, what, what do you think about that? 
you can probably imagine where I'm going to go with this. I think the soft stuff is the hard stuff. <laughs> I agree with Daniel Goldman, right? That used to be called psycho babble or mumbo jumbo. And mm. it's the capacity. I believe this because I can't talk about emotional intelligence without talking about organizational culture. Mm. Right? So organizational culture, we can look at it this way, hard and soft. Um, two dimensions of organizational performance are execution and culture. Execution may be understood to be quantitative and hard. Culture may be understood to be qualitative and softer, right? But it's clearly both important and clearly both related, right? And, but key for organizational outcomes. Um, in my work, right, my bread and butter is a six-month program I call SOAR, S-O-A-R, stands for Success Through Observer Action Results. And one of the models, one of the, model, one of the modules is emotional intelligence and trust, right? So I mm -hmm. share what I got taught in this area, again, for the sake of, number one, we are already, you know, unique observers, right? This unique observer composed of language, moods and emotions, and body. So we're already a linguistic being. We're already a biological being. And we're already an emotional being. So one of the reasons we're talking about moods and emotions at work is that we're already emotional. And number one, everybody is always in one mood or another, right? Apathy is right. a mood. Apathy is a mood, calm and collected is a mood. Whatever mood we're in, it's not nothing. It's something. And noticing that and notice how, noticing uh, from a big eye standpoint, right, how our moods dramatically impact our interpretations, our assessments, and how our assessments dramatically impact our moods. And given that the interpretations are the prerequisite for action, let's pay attention. Let's pay attention. So giving people these skills, I believe, and also with far more organizations using Teams, right? And so the sideways communication, these informal you know, channels of influence, not direct power, right? Uh -huh. Because of that, uh, and I, I think also because of the, the desire to, to decentralize decision-making and push it further out you know, toward the action, all those, I believe, are contributing factors that make emotional intelligence, listening, right? Self-awareness, clarity, all these sorts of things, more important, not less. And I don't think it's going away. No, I, I don't, don't either. And, and and to kind of go along with what you're saying, since you mentioned uh, culture in this, you know, um, of course, we, we're familiar with Peter Drucker's famous quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, yeah. and yet that it's related to this so-called soft skill of emotional intelligence. If that is true, and if the, this drum has been be, like, <laughs> why is it still sort of ignored even here in 2023? Why is it so hard to get? Why do some so many people think it's, you know, the the um, kegs of beer on Fridays and a few ping pong tables? No, good point. I don't know the answer. You know, I, I, I do know that I somehow got lucky enough to, to fall into a subset of the leadership population. And again, it's through Vistage, right? These leadership peer groups mm -hmm. that almost to a person, everybody in these groups, they understand what culture is and why it's important. They're working on it. They're talking about it. They have speakers to help them get new insights and, and new tools. I talk about it, you know, when I'm there with them. Um, and, and so it, you know, so it's not a fair subset because by definition, they wouldn't be in a peer group if they thought they already knew everything, right? 
And right. the, but, but these leadership peer groups, they talk a lot about intentional culture creation, right? There's an expression, okay, companies can create a culture haphazardly, but world-class companies create culture intentionally, right? There's an intentionality to the values and behaviors that we articulate, right? To the norms, to the standards, um, to the way that we craft a vision and a, and a compelling purpose. And because it's about meaning making, right? When I think about culture, I think of I mean, what's the, uh, like it has to do with, with making meaning, with making sense, with having purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Covey, you mentioned Goldman, you know, Stephen Covey's work, he was the first person <clears throat> I ever heard say something like this. You can buy people's hands and feet. You cannot buy their creativity. You cannot buy their enthusiasm. This they must give to you freely. It's a pull, not a push. That is great. It's a pull, not a push. How do we, so how do we create this space for this intrinsic motivation to come forth, right? And the work on intrinsic motivation, right? I think it's uh, from self-determination theory. They talk about three aspects or dimensions. Let's see if I can get this right. Um, autonomy, relatedness, and competence. So to purposely create yes. culture and environment, right? Where people, and, and again, nothing wrong with extrinsic motivation, people need to get paid, right? And people right. need to you know, be recognized, all that. But this intrinsic motivation, are we, are we creating a relational space that's healthy? Are we giving them tools for skill building and capacity building so they can be competent? Because everyone wants to feel like they accomplished something, you know, job, job well done. And what level of autonomy? Are we giving them? Because for most people to bring forth this best version of themselves, right? They need to have yeah. something that they're not being micromanaged, right? That they have some autonomy. Yeah. Let's. Um, so, in light of that, I just I'm just pursuing a curiosity here. Um, what do you think about the? I don't want to just throw it out as an either or, but just this, the conversation around the four day work week we've had. So I've had, um, we've had Joe Sanic on who wrote Thursday is the new Friday. And he's, he makes this great case for the, the arbitrariness of the five day, 40 hour work week and uh, historically examines it and says, it's time for, um, to literally make Thursday the new Friday. And then I just had a conversation with someone uh, who were Teresa Caro on the podcast. And she was like, you know, I don't think it's so much that it needs to just be these four days. It needs to be about leading a prioritized life. And so she's more wanting flexibility from the day to day, like, hey, I might actually want to get a few things done on a Saturday or a Sunday. But in general, it's the flexibility and and those expectations. In terms of what you're saying about culture and letting people have their autonomy and relatedness, is is this a direction that companies can go to be in or or in the super competitive this culture that we are swimming in like fish, is it just inevitable that the people, they're just going to end up working more and more and more? Right. Great question. I, I don't know, but let me ponder. Um, You know, I can see, well, many of the people that own their own businesses, for example, are already working in interesting ways, right? Hmm. Uh, again, 
and as you might think, right, they don't have a boss. They are their own boss, right? So they're setting their priorities and their, their schedules. And really, to be honest, many of them are working more than five days a week, right? Many of them are probably bringing their work home with them, all this. Um, and, and so that's not really the the audience or the the group of people, I think, that you were asking about, right? I think if we're asking about people that that, that are not the boss, they go to work and they're looking for this kind of an environment, um, I do think... I do think that the company and the little bit of research I've seen seems to point out that there's not a drop off in productivity. There doesn't appear to be. And there appears to be an increase in autonomy, motivation, you know, intrinsic motivation. There's a there's a shift. I mean, you know, people value that and are willing to um not that they weren't, I guess, purposely trying to be unproductive in a five-day week, but um, so the little bit of research I've seen um, appears to be positive, meaning appears that they, the business, if you're looking purely at the bottom line, there doesn't appear to be a drop-off for the companies that have tried it. And I think there's been a couple of pilots, right, that are, that yeah. are intentionally doing it to, and they're measuring, you know, to to uh, see. And so uh, I didn't know that there was a, I, I, I still don't know the history of the five day work week or how, you know, how we got here, uh, but I would be interested in, in learning kind of well, how long have we had a five day uh, work week? Do you know? Well, there was a lot of, there's a lot of relationship to the Henry Ford and creating that, that line, that assembly line yeah. and the punching in and the punching out yeah. And then I I recently saw there was, I think, in a 1938 New York uh, Times headline, something about they passed a, a piece of legislation that said the five-day work week is a maximum of 40 hours a week, a maximum. So it's like our expectations and understanding uh, – I, I wonder if in a few generations how they'll look back on. I do. I do too. In fact, the way you said that, I just uh, sent an article to myself. And it was on, I think, one of the websites, a news website. But apparently, uh, they did a global survey of employees, and a historically high number are disengaged, right? Unhappy, yeah. a burnout, right? I mean, so right. I, I mean, a, a historically high number are. So there's something there's there's giant room for improvement in these areas. I mean, um, with the with the premium on creativity, right, and innovation, right. I mean, those sorts of uh, again in Stephen Covey, right. You can't buy people's enthusiasm. This they have to give to you. So how can we create a space if we say that we need to innovate to stay ahead and to be successful and you know to do what we need to do. Um, I, I think organizations that invest in this sort of learning, and I know I'm biased, but but that invest in this sort of learning, I think it's money well spent. Absolutely. Uh, well, really, for me, one last question is just uh, this idea of I want to believe that language is action. I'm buying. I've bought into that thinking of uh, that. You know some some philosophers of the 20th century have helped us to see and, uh, and as new fields and as you advocate for in your book, but you know, like I have <laughs> brought this up to some, some folks and, you know, they're like, well, you know, sometimes it's just like talk is just talk and we need to see action. 
And I was, and I think that that's, that's an interesting idea. I guess when, when we're talking about uh, just language and how it generates all the time, then I guess what exactly are the specific generative actions that leaders need to take to produce these desired results? Well, number one is make a declaration. I mean, goals are declared into being. Values are declared into being. Vision is declared into being. Standards are declared into being. So if you want, if you're a leader and you want the purposeful, you want meaning making in your company and you want people, quote, on the same page, then we got to make some declarations. And so organizational declarations create organizational context, right? Mm -hmm. Um, next, we need to make promises. Organizations themselves are human beings coordinating action, but they're not coordinating action with magic. They're coordinating action <laughs> with they're coordinating action with certain types of conversations, and we call these promises or commitments or agreements. And understanding, because I believe this, that the output of any company, the output, whether it's goods or services, the output of any company is directly connected to the quality of conversations that take place inside that company. Yes. Tell me a company that has a bunch of missing conversations, avoided conversations, unauthentic conversations. You show me an organization where people do not manage their commitments, right? I'll show you a company that's going to have execution problems, which are quantitative, and culture problems, which are qualitative, right? And you know, it's, not, it's not just that an organization's culture influences how people in that company work together, which is true. It's also the case that the way the people in the company work together shapes the culture. Causality is two-way, right? And by improving how people coordinate action, and this is by making an effective request, valid responses, responsible complaints, Keeping yes. separate, right? Keeping separate. A promise broken is not the same thing as a silent expectation unmet. Right, right. So gigantically separate, right? And so these are the conversations that actually drive action, you know, coordinated action. And when we think about it, the vast majority of action inside a company is coordinated collaborative action as opposed to unilateral individual action. Organizations right. produce results through coordinated action. And this is where life, and it all happens in language. And I would much rather have a broken promise than these, these inexorable expectations, because yes. at least then I have something to work with. Absolutely. And, and the real issue is, well, there's a couple. Number one, it can affect my mood, meaning if I don't have the separation between promise broken is not the same as silent expectation unmet. Mm -hmm. Example number one is when you just don't magically fulfill my unspoken expectations, then I get resentful. Right. So I have no need to. Right. And now we have also a trust issue. We have no need. Now, if you break a promise to me. This is an issue for trust, you know, right? You, right. you broke the commitment so we can have a different conversation. Exactly. And, and so I, I can make a responsible complaint. But if you just don't magically fulfill my unspoken expectations, I have no grounds to make a complaint of you. I may certainly make a request of you. But do you feel the difference in tone and energy? Uh, oh, yes. From a complaint and a request. And I believe this, that distinction Helping people, whether it's inside an organization or in a relationship, live with clarity 
Yes. That promises broken are not the same things as silent expectations unmet. It's a giant, very beneficial, wonderfully helpful new distinction. And to your huge point about that, just being self-aware you, you as a leader to have the awareness that I have these expectations that I may or may not be articulating or making clear. Absolutely. And there's no problem with having expectations. The problem right. is, number one, if they're silent and you're holding people responsible, right? And number two, let's have shared expectations, right? Well, because we're working. Now, if you're alone, you know, doing your thing in the woods, you <laughs> have your own expectations and don't have to talk to anybody about it. But we're not in the woods. We're working with and through people all the time. But these unspoken expectations are, um, I mean, think about marriages, think about friendships, think about, you know, trying to hold people accountable in a healthy way. So many things are at stake just because of that separation. That just, Those are not the same things. And I invite people, keep them separate, keep them separate, keep them separate. Beautiful stuff. Uh, just so helpful. And your your book is this, it's all the teachings are laid out in it really clearly. And you have a number of books, of course. Um, I have two. Just the, I have, yeah, I have two. Uh, Language and the Pursuit of Happiness came out in uh, late 04, early 05. And as you so, so kindly shared, Language and the Pursuit of Leadership Excellence uh, with my friend Vinay came out in 2015. And we will uh, definitely have that in the show notes. Where would you like people to be able to discover you, your work, and reach out to find out more? Well, thank you. My name is Chalmers Brothers. So if you Google ChalmersBrothers.com, it'll pop up. Um, my middle name is Chalmers. My last name is Brothers. So um, <laughs> it's not a law firm. It's just me. Uh, <laughs> it's just me. Um, and my website and my books are out there in a big way on Amazon, on my site, and some other bookstores as well. And your TED Talk, your 2014 TED, TED Talk has made some rounds. It has, it has. I'm, I'm pleased about that. It's, uh, it was a very, very fun thing to do. Well, well, Chalmers Brothers, thank you so much for your time on The Big Self Show. You are very generous. Thank you for having me, and I wish you all good things, and uh, looking forward to being in touch. We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them to live a more sustainable life, to open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness, and move from surviving to thriving to flourishing. And I think what Chalmers Brothers is trying to say is that we create and generate our realities each and every day, and that choice the choice to change our direction or the choice to remain entrenched in our current positions is constantly before us. We need self-aware leaders who are willing to learn and listen to what it takes to be on top of the constant changes in our dynamic workplaces and who are willing and ready to create cultures based on understanding each other as humans and not just replaceable cogs in a wheel that support the so-called hard skills of the bottom line. He is all about the bottom line and is helping to show us the way to changing our observer to get the results we say we want. 
You know where to find us to get the results you say you want at BigSelfSchool.com, where we offer one-to-one coaching as well as trainings and workshops for organizations big and small. Here's to seeing you on our next episode of The Big Self Show.